0: This morning we're going to look at the second uh, part of of that prayer that I've divided up into uh, three parts. As we go through the prayer this morning, I'll have the verses up on the screen. You can follow along that way. Uh, You'll notice people around you might be following along in a a paper Bible or a Bible app. And if you'd like to uh, follow along in a paper Bible and don't have one, our ushers are coming down the aisle. And if you'll just signal them somehow, they'd be happy to put one in your hands. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please consider taking this one uh, with you. We think everyone should have a copy of this really amazing book. Before we uh, look in our Bibles together at this amazing prayer, let's pray together. Uh, The words from an old Anglican prayer, I think, serve us well this morning. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week in uh, the first five verses, we heard Jesus praying that God would be glorified in what Jesus was about to go through. Uh, That is, the the cross, His resurrection, and His ascension to the Father, that that Jesus would be glorified, um, that that He would put on display the character of God as as He did that. And in the passage in front of us today, uh, just before praying for His disciples now, Jesus continues praying about the mission that He's accomplished, the mission that God sent Him on. Uh, So uh, let's look at verses 6 through 8 together where Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They belonged to you, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they understand that everything you have given me comes from you because I have given them the words you have given me. And they accepted them, and they have known for certain That I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Uh, Just like with last week's prayer, there's some really deep theological truths embedded in this uh, prayer of Jesus uh, that are important for us to understand. Uh, I read this week that that one pastor uh, took half a year to preach through John 17, Uh, one verse every Sunday. Uh, all, the way, all the way through this, 26 verses. There's enough theological truth in here to warrant that. My fear is that if, if we do that, we'll learn a lot of really interesting things, but we'll lose sight of the prayer. We'll lose sight of the whole uh, because we're, we're, we've become so granular. Uh, but there are important things in here that, that, that we should understand. Uh, or we won't get what, what Jesus is praying for. So that's sort of the tension that I'm preaching into this morning, you know, balancing these important things that we should know with what Jesus is praying for and what we need to do. So that's sort of my challenge. Anyway, this, this prayer begins with Jesus saying that He has manifested the Father's name. Manifested the Father's name. Uh, Names in the the Bible, in Hebrew culture especially, uh, were very important. Parents named their children in hopes that the child would grow into uh, the meaning of that name, right? And when we read about God's name, we need to understand that it, it sort of becomes shorthand for the character of God, who He is and what He has done. Uh, We looked at Exodus 34 last week when God caused his glory, all of his goodness, to pass in front of Moses. And when he did that, he began by declaring his name, Yahweh, the name that he had uh, shared with with Moses there at the, the burning bush. In fact, in Exodus 34, God said it twice, sort of as if to underscore that this was all about his name. Uh, This is is what it means for him to be Yahweh, okay? Uh, He said uh, in, in Exodus 34, verse 6, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. This is who God is, and his name is is shorthand, uh, a shorthand way of saying who he is. So when Jesus says that he has manifested God's name, fundamentally, he means that he showed us who God is. That's what he means when he says, I manifested your name, as he's praying to the Father. He showed us who God is, what God is like. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus showed the disciples who God was. He showed them the character and nature of God. Uh, Throughout the book of John, and we've seen these as we've been making our way through, um, Jesus, uh, seven different times, makes an I am statement, like I am all caps, right? Uh, And in doing that, theologians believe that he is taking on himself the name of God, Yahweh, which just very literally means I am. It's really strange language. What's your name? My name is I am. I am that I am. It's it's strange, but that's that's why God defined it for him. I am Yahweh, Yahweh, God of compassion and mercy. One one, uh, professor of mine in seminary said, another way of hearing this is, I will be for you everything you ever need a God to be. That's a wonderful, wonderful name. But Jesus, seven different times in the, in the gospel of John, takes on that name. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and then in John 15, I am the true vine. And in each one of these statements, Jesus was not only claiming to be Yahweh, claiming to be God, but he was putting on display for those around him. He was manifesting God's nature, God's character. So that's, that's one of the first things we see just in that very first sentence there. Uh, the next thing we see in Jesus' prayer is a pretty heavy theological truth called the doctrine of God's prevenient grace. A bunch of big words there. Uh, Jesus says that He has manifested God's name to those whom God gave to Jesus. He says that God took these people out of the world and gave them to Jesus. Uh, we saw similar language In John chapter 6, where Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Oftentimes when I'm praying for people, I I pray that God would draw them to Jesus. Even this morning I was praying for someone. I said, if you don't want to woo them, drag them. (laughs) Drag them to Jesus. Jesus. The important thing that that this is telling us is that God is always the initiator when it comes to our salvation. Always, always, always God initiates. But Jesus' prayer also talks about human responsibility because in verse 8, it says that uh, these disciples have accepted the word and believed that Jesus was sent from God. Verse 6 says that they have kept or obeyed God's Word. They're continuing in that belief. And so I want to say this morning, no matter how you view election uh, when, it, when it comes to salvation, whether you're a 10-point Calvinist or a 20-point point Arminian or whether you're somewhere in between, like a, a calamari or something, I don't know. Some of you have no idea the joke I'm trying to make here. It's not working what i'm trying to say is no matter where you land in your beliefs on election we see in these verses clear evidence of god's prevenient grace in drawing people to himself and clear evidence of uh, our responsibility to respond to that to continue believing to continue obeying somehow both of those things uh, are at work as people come to faith in Jesus. Moving on, in verse 9, Jesus further clarifies who it is he's praying for. He says, I am praying on behalf of them, that is the disciples. I am not praying on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you have given me, because they belong to you. Everything I have belongs to you, and everything you have belongs to me, and I have been glorified among them. I'm no longer going to be in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Jesus is praying here for his disciples, again, noting that they have been given to him by God. And he makes an interesting point. He makes a point of saying he's not praying for the world here. Got to be careful, because it doesn't mean that Jesus is not concerned about the world, that He doesn't care about the world. John 3.16, of course, very familiar passage, tells us that uh, it was out of love for the world that Jesus came in the first place. John 4.42 tells us that He came to be the Savior of the world. Jesus cares deeply about lost people. But in this prayer, uh, in this section of this prayer, He's focused on His disciples. Verse 10 speaks to the oneness that Jesus enjoys with His Father. Uh, verse 10, along with the most of the previous chapter on the Holy Spirit, speaks to the unity of the Trinity. That word Trinity is not used in our Bibles, but, but we see evidence of it. And this is one of those places that we see it. We'll, we'll look at it again or, or more carefully, closely in a couple of weeks. Uh, The first part of verse 11 tells us why Jesus is so urgently praying for these men. He's leaving the world, and they are staying in the world. They're going to need help. And as we move into the last part of verse 11, we get to Jesus' actual prayer for them. These first few verses here in this section have sort of been leading up to Jesus' prayer for them, where he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name that you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them and guarded them in your name, the name that you have given me. Not one of them was lost except the Son of Destruction, so that the scripture could be fulfilled. This is actually the only place in the Bible that God is referred to as Holy Father. It's interesting. Um, we're going to unpack that as we get into verses 17 through 19. But Jesus prays here to His Holy Father that God will keep them in His name. Jesus says that He, Jesus, kept them and guarded them in the Father's name while He was with them over the past three and a half years of His ministry. And again, we need to remember that name represents the, the whole character of of God, who He is and what He has done. And Jesus has said up in verse 6 that He has manifested or displayed that character of God among these 11 men. And all of them were, were kept there. They continued in their belief that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. All of them, that is, except for one, the one called the Son of Destruction. King James Version translates this, son of perdition. Maybe some of you have heard that before. Perdition is an old word that means eternal spiritual death. Um, And there's there's kind of a play on words in the Greek here um, uh, that literally says, none of them perished except the son of perishing. None of them perished except the son of perishing. And then Jesus adds that this was so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. We think the Scriptures that Jesus was referring to are are probably two. Uh, One, Psalm 41.9, and then the other, Zechariah 11. Psalm 41.9, if if you want to just make a note of it, or you can even turn to it now, says, even my close friend, the one who shared my food, has turned against me. Who does that sound like? Judas. Zechariah 11 talks about the death of a servant being valued at just 30 pieces of silver. And those 30 pieces of silver were then thrown to the potter in Zechariah 11. It's interesting, when we come to Matthew's gospel, we read that Judas betrayed Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver. And then that money was used to buy potter's field. And in that field, Judas uh, hanged himself. Judas's betrayal of Jesus was a fulfillment of prophecy. This is what Jesus is saying here. All of them were kept by him, all of them except for Judas. Judas. Verse 13 uh, feels strange to me in in the middle of this prayer because Jesus says, Now I am coming to you, and I am saying these things in the world so they may experience my joy completed in themselves. It's strange because of what comes next. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. This is really similar language uh, to what we heard Jesus use a couple of weeks ago in the last part of John 15, that they would be persecuted, uh, hunted down, killed. They would be hated. Why? Because of his name. And here Jesus is saying that he's saying these things so that they might experience his joy, completed, filled up, overflowing in the middle of this. We lose sight of this a little bit, but chapters 13 through 17 all happen on one night, right? They're they're all his uh, farewell discourse. How many hours? I don't know, a couple, maybe three. Not a long time since Jesus has said this. When Josh Jacobson preached uh, the passage from the first part of John 15 a few weeks ago, He showed us that our joy comes from staying connected to the true vine, remember? Uh, And we stay connected, Jesus says, to the vine by obeying his command to love. And here when Jesus is praying for these same men, he prays these same words, almost identical phrases, out loud uh, as, as a request to the Father and a reminder, I think, to these men, Hard times are coming. So stay connected to the vine. Obey the command to love. And you'll discover the joy of Jesus in the midst of it all. Well, so far uh, in this section of Jesus' prayer, we've we've seen a number of, I think, important truths. We've uh, heard Jesus say that he manifested or put on display the name or character of God. He's, he's the exact representation of God, as Hebrews 1.3 says. We heard Jesus say again that God is the one who draws people to Jesus, but that we are responsible for belief and, and continuing in that belief. As he began to pray specifically for the disciples, Jesus prayed that they would be kept, uh, some of your translations say, kept safe in God's name. What he means is that they would would keep on believing, even when it got really hard. And then we heard Jesus pray that his joy would be made complete in the disciples as they did all of this. And all of those are really important, I think, for us to know. Uh, Some of those point to, to really core theological truths that all Christians, I think, should understand. But as we come to these last few verses of this section, we get to what I, I think is, is the, the heart of this prayer. Uh, it's, it's the part um, that is most important, I think, for us to take in and apply uh, at least. So let's read the last part of this section beginning at verse 15. Jesus says, I am not asking you to take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. I sanctified myself for them so that they too may be truly sanctified. There's several key words Um, from Jesus' prayer and really from the Gospel of John that sort of converge for us in these five verses. Um, Four words in particular uh, that I want to spend the rest of our time uh, looking at here. The first first word that I want us to look at is the word world. Uh, John uh, uses the word world... 78 times in his gospel, almost 80 times. He uses it 40 times in his farewell discourse, chapter 13 through 17. He uses it 18 times in this prayer, chapter 17, and 14 times in this section that we're looking at today, verses 6 through 19. And we learn in this prayer, that the disciples have been given to Jesus by God out of the world, verses 2 and 6, but they are not taken out of the world, verse 15. They are hated by the world, verse 14, but find Jesus' joy made complete in them as they obey his command to love. Verse 13, pointing back to chapter 15. Uh, Specifically, I think it's 1511. They no longer belong to the world, verse 16, but are sent into the world. Verse 18. What is going on here? I I think if we're going to be successful followers of Jesus, our view of the world... At least according to John, our view of the world is really important. And if we're going to successfully follow Jesus, we're going to have to conform to His view of the world. He loved all the people in the world, John 3.16. But He did not love the values of the world, a world intent on rebelling against God. His love for the people of the world put him in regular contact, regular association even, with tax collectors, sometimes prostitutes, all manner of sinful people. But he never once adopted the world's values as his own. There's this seeming tension between being in the world but not belonging to the world. Do you see? And that takes us to the next key word that I want us to look at, the word sanctify. Uh, The the root of the word sanctify is hagios. Uh, We we first encounter this word in, in this section today in verse 11, where Jesus addressed God as his holy Father. We tend to think of holiness as, as purity, and it, and it certainly carries that meaning with it. But at its core, uh, the word means to be other, to, to, to be set apart, to be consecrated. And all the way through the Bible, uh, we see that those who were consecrated were set apart for something, as much as they were set apart from something, okay? Uh, So in the Old Testament, when the priests would consecrate themselves, they would go through uh, a, a purification ritual to set themselves apart from sinful behaviors, but the intent was never just to be set apart from those things, but uh, to be set apart for the work of God. And, and so what is happening here is Jesus is asking his holy father, Hagio's father, to make holy or to set apart, consecrate, sanctify his disciples for something. This, this word sanctify is also... Um, uh, the The root of of where we get uh, the word saint from Paul says that every believer, all of those who in this room claim the name of Christ are saints, sanctified that's that 's what it means. so how does this happen how does How does God sanctify us? Well, it takes us to the next word or pair of words. Really, that I want us to take note of the words truth and word. Jesus prays that his disciples will be sanctified by the truth, and then he defines the truth as God's word. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Now, inside the church, not not so much outside the church, but inside the church, when we say God's word, that's sort of code language for what? Scripture. Yeah, scripture or the Bible. Sort of. Uh, the, the Greek word underneath our English word, word is logos. Uh, John uses it 40 times in his gospel account of Jesus. Almost every time that John uses the word Logos, uh, he is referring either to Jesus himself or the message about Jesus. Uh, Probably most familiar and most clear to us is in John's prologue to to the whole book. Uh, In chapter 1, John told us that the word Logos was with God in the beginning, that the Logos was in fact God. And that the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. You remember? We often read that at Christmas time. Who is the Logos that John is talking about that became flesh and dwelt among us? Come on, you know. Thank you. Felt a little bit like Sunday school there. Jesus. You're right. That is who John is talking about, Jesus. See, for John, when, whenever he talks about the Word of God, he's not primarily talking about the Bible. He's primarily talking about Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself kind of does this in John 5. He rebuked the religious leaders for searching the Scriptures, thinking that the Scriptures contain eternal life. But Jesus said what the scriptures point to me he said scriptures point to jesus now just in case any of you are freaking out a little bit here at what i'm saying is the message about jesus contained in the pages of the bible yes i need to say that again yes it is should we read our bibles to understand who god is and how we should live Absolutely, yes. Should we read our Old Testament sections as well? Yes, we have to, we must. If we're going to understand how Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all that God was doing through the Old Testament, and he is, I believe, we have to read that to understand it. But when Jesus says that we are sanctified by the truth and God's word is the truth, he's talking about himself, the incarnate living word of God. So how do we do that? How do we become sanctified by the truth of Jesus? Well, we do it by marinating ourselves in him by allowing His Holy Spirit to teach us and and lead us in our understanding about Jesus, reminding us of the things that He said and did, by becoming more and more and more conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. And the primary way for us to understand who Jesus is is by spending time in the Bible that tells us what he did and what he said, what he valued. We do it by spending so much time with Jesus in the Bible that we begin to think like him and talk like him and act like him. You see? And the more and more we do that, the more and more we will look like Jesus and the less we will look like the world. And that takes us to the fourth key word in these five verses, and that's the word sent. As I said earlier, sanctification is always primarily for something, not just from something. And here in verse 18, we see what we are to be sanctified for. We are sanctified to be sent into the world. That's the purpose. Uh, the, the Greek word underneath our English word sent is apostello. It's where do we get apostle from? In the Latin translation of the, of the Bible, the word is missio. Where do we get mission from? Jesus was sent on mission by God to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. And here in verse 18, he says that just as God sent him into the world, Jesus now sends his disciples, and by implication us, I think, into the world. Kent Hughes has said that it is possible to go womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers. Abandoning our culture to the devil. We need to ask ourselves honestly if we have functionally removed ourselves from the world. Christ prays that we will not. I went to a Christian high school and uh, there are a lot of reasons that I'm really grateful for that experience. But I got to tell you, I, re- I remember thinking, my gosh, these people would buy their groceries at Christian Supply if they could. Some of you are, this is still dawning on you, what I'm saying. They were so isolated from the world. It wouldn't touch anything that they perceived belonged to the world. It was really sad because they missed the point of what Jesus was saying. We were meant to be in the world, even though we don't belong to it. We don't share their values. In verse 19, Jesus says that he sanctified himself, meaning he consecrated himself, committed himself to the, the mission that God had set out for him, so that we too might be truly sanctified. Because Jesus was obedient to God in humbling himself, even to the point of death, something we'll remember together here in a few moments. Because Jesus did that, we too can be obedient to God, sanctified, consecrated, set apart for God's purposes. And it seems really clear to me from Jesus' prayer that God's purposes for His followers is to go into the world and tell people who Jesus is. So as I I close, I want to acknowledge here that what Jesus is saying is not easy. It's not. um, I think one clue is the very fact that the Lord Himself prayed for this for His disciples and, and prays for their protection as they do it probably is an indication that it's not easy, right? We need help. And as His modern-day disciples, we're going to need God's grace and and help and, and power to be the people who have been saved out of the world, only to be set apart, sanctified, and then sent back into the world as witnesses for Jesus. I'm thinking there are probably three takeaways in this morning's section of Jesus' prayer. Three three things that we really have to consider uh, if we're going to be true disciples of Jesus. The first comes in the form uh, of a rebuke. I thought about changing it to C so I would have three C's, but I didn't. In his prayer, Jesus said that his disciples no longer belong to the world just like Jesus doesn't belong to the world. And I wonder this morning if any of us can say that we have lived in the world uh, without being compromised by the world. I know I can't. But, But you see, we can't say amen to Jesus' prayer for protection from the evil one Thank you, Jesus, for praying that for me. And then continue to dabble in things that we know are not from God. We just, we can't. We have to marinate ourselves in the Word and let His truth change us. As Paul said, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So if you call yourself a Christian and are still dabbling in sin... pursuing worldly values that will never satisfy you, let me say it plainly. Stop it. Stop it. Repent. That just means turn around and follow Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing I think is clear from this prayer is that we have a job to do. We have been commissioned. Uh, Some people refer to this prayer as Jesus's commissioning prayer. Uh, a lot of times when we commission uh, new missionaries, we'll, we'll lay hands on them and, and pray for them as, as they go out. That's sort of what Jesus is, is doing. We are sent ones. We are. We have been set apart, sanctified, consecrated to go into the world manifesting Jesus just as Jesus manifested to the world, the Father. We're sent into the world to put Jesus on display. See, we're not saved just so we can be saved. Hallelujah, I'm saved. Okay, you missed the point, right? Jesus is enlisting his followers to continue in the power of the Holy Spirit, the work that he began. So we have to ask this question. How and where are we getting into the world? Where is God sending you? That's why God called you out of the world and and sanctified you so that you would go back into the world. How are you doing that? How are you doing that in your neighborhood, at at your job, at school, at the gym, at the grocery store? Not the Christian supply grocery store, the real one. See, you've been commissioned by God to carry the good news about Jesus to a world that desperately needs to know him. That's our job. Okay? And then lastly, I want to suggest that there's a comfort uh, for us in this prayer. The fact that Jesus prayed this and continues to pray this for his disciples and for us should be a comfort to us. Uh, we're not in this alone. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father praying for us nonstop. That's what he does. James 5.16 says that the earnest prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Any of you think Jesus' prayers might be powerful and effective? yeah, yeah, so do I. I'm comforted, encouraged, knowing that he prayed and continues to pray for me and for you. And beyond that, Jesus promised his Holy Spirit to help us in this commission, this job that we have been given. And so he leads us and reminds us of the important things we need to remember about Jesus, to, to say about Jesus. He protects us. We're not alone. We have been called out of the world, sanctified, and are sent back into the world to invite others to follow Jesus in this abundant life that he offers. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for calling us out of the world and giving us to Jesus. We recognize that we were absolutely helpless in our sin. We needed you to draw us, in some cases drag us, to Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your sanctifying work setting us apart, not just from the world, but for the world, to go back into the world. Thank you for doing that. And Holy Spirit, we're grateful for your work in our lives, your work of marinating us in the things of Jesus, the incarnate word of God. We ask that you would empower us this week as we go back into the world to put Jesus on display. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.